Bruce Banner got hit with gamma radiation. Ben Grimm was in a spacecraft hit by cosmic rays. Bruce Wayne saw his parents killed by a hoodlum, and Peter Parker was bit by a radioactive spider. Barbara Gordon, on the other hand, simply chose to become Batgirl. Hey, it's Matt, and this is a special archived episode of Akimbo. Everywhere we look, there are origin stories. They go all the way back to Greek and Roman mythology, and probably before. But we know the origin story by heart. We've heard it a million times about Superman. Superman! Yes, it's Superman. Strange visitor from another planet who came to Earth with powers and abilities far beyond those of mortal men. Or when King Arthur took the sword out of Excalibur. Hold! Who goes there? It is I, Arthur, son of Uther Pendragon from the castle of Camelot. The origin story often has two components. The first one is something happened. Maybe it was random. Something happened to our hero, to our founder. And then the second part is a choice was made. That choice opens doors, and sets that hero on a path. And it turns out we repeat that story about our hero and about ourselves over and over again. And it has far more impact on our choices and our culture than we usually give it credit for. Consider the case of Starbucks. Starbucks, many people don't know, was a store, maybe two stores in Seattle that didn't sell drip coffee or espresso. All they sold were beans and herbs, maybe some tea, but you couldn't drink anything. A guy named Howard Schultz was working for a housewares company, and he went to Italy. In Italy, he discovered espresso culture. He had this transformational experience about the third place, about a certain kind of quality, about a certain kind of taste profile, mostly about what it felt to be part of it. It was a few years later that Howard Schultz, who did not found Starbucks, took over Starbucks and grew it from the few stores that it had when he got there to the bazillion stores that they have now. But that story, that original story, is understood by most of the people who work there. It gets to their origin. Or Oprah Winfrey. Oprah is happy to talk about her childhood and the impact that it made on her, about being raised by a single mom who was often overwhelmed, about being taken care of by a grandmother and then perhaps an uncle. This story about possibility and connection and community, about overcoming odds and about self-transformation has informed all of Oprah's work. Just down the street from where Oprah was born, Sam Walton started a hardware store, a little tiny hardware store. But that hardware store and the people it set out to serve, again, that origin story continues to have an impact on the company. Their arch enemy, Amazon, started by a guy who proudly points out, and you can see the photos, 
No desks at Amazon. They didn't have money at the beginning. They're scrappy. So they used doors from the Home Depot on a couple two-by-fours. That was the desk. Fast forward all these years later, that ethos, sort of a do-it-yourself, be scrappy, and be cheap ethos, informs so much of what the company does. Back to this idea of the proximate event, the thing that caused all of the challenges, and maybe the idea of being picked. So when Peter Parker was bit by a radioactive spider, it's nothing that he asked for. And because he was an uppity teenager, the tension in the early stories were all about his misbehavior, about his wanton waste of his powers. And it was only when his uncle was killed that Peter Parker made a commitment to choose a different path. Compare that to someone like the Green Lantern or the Dalai Lama. They were picked. They were picked by somebody who said to them, you, you need to go out in the world and do a thing. That also changes our origin story. It changes how we see ourselves going forward. So I've been rehearsing my origin story for a really long time. When I was 14 years old, my dad worked for a company in Buffalo, New York. For a bunch of reasons, some good, some ridiculous, he didn't like boats. And a guy who worked with his company said, Hey, Bill, I just got this new boat, and I'm going to sail it on Lake Erie to Detroit. You want to come and crew with me this weekend? Well, first of all, he couldn't sail it because it wasn't a sailboat. It was a 25-foot motorboat. And secondly, my dad didn't want to go because he hated boats. But he nominated his eldest son. He said, no, I can't make it, but my son would be happy to go. So with $25 in my wallet and a ticket back from Detroit to Buffalo on U.S. Air, we headed off. Now, Lake Erie, Lake Erie is a lake so big that when you're in the middle of it, you can't even begin to see the shore. It's sort of like an ocean in that respect. So we start off, it was a sunny day, water was flat, it was great. But after a couple hours, the wind blew up, and I got really sick. And the guy was mad at me for getting sick on his new boat, but what could I do? I was really sick. The second day, I hadn't eaten, of course, because I was just fasting until I got home. The water was like glass. And we're going along and we're doing fine. And about 5 o'clock at night, the boat runs out of gas. And so we're standing there and the boat starts rocking and rocking. And I get sick again. And he says, don't worry, the Coast Guard will be here soon. And look, over there, you can see the lights of Detroit. Well, the Coast Guard comes out and throws us a jerry can full of gas and goes away. Well, the yachts who had the boat puts the gas into the motor and it doesn't start. So we're on the water for another hour, in the dark. Finally, the Coast Guard comes back and tows us into Detroit. Except it's not Detroit, it's Cleveland. He also got lost. We finally pull into Cleveland around 11 o'clock at night. It's 1974. The guy says to me, Here, this is George. He's going to take you to the Rapid, and then you can go home tomorrow. I'm like, oh, the Rapid, a hotel, great. So George and I get in the car. And he doesn't drop me off at a hotel. He drops me off at the Cleveland Rapid Transit Service in the middle of a tough neighborhood in 1974 in a tough city. Somehow, I figure out how to get on the train, figure out where the airport is, get to the airport, 
There's one bus running at 1230 at night, and I take the bus to the hotel, to the Hilton. I go to check into the Hilton. The guy says, $20 in advance. So I give him all the money I have left, and I go up to my room. Now remember, I was supposed to be on a flight that landed four hours ago. No cell phones. My parents went to the airport. I'm not there. So I call home, and I'm exhausted. And I say, Mom, Dad, don't worry. I'm at the Hilton. I'll figure out how to fly home tomorrow. The next morning at 6 a.m., the phone rings. It's my mom. She says, you're in Cleveland. I was like, yeah, I know I'm in Cleveland. But I had forgotten to tell them I was in Cleveland. And my mom had been calling every Hilton hotel in concentric circles from Detroit until she found me. Well, I flew home 10 o'clock in the morning with my uh, vomit-encrusted shirt, having not eaten for two days. My mom picks me up at the airport, hands me a change of clothes, and takes me to school. She says, you're not sick. You don't get a day off. And that's my origin story. You're not sick. You don't get a day off. You'll get rejected. You'll throw up on the boat. You'll get lost in a big city, and you'll figure it out. And this idea that after an incident, we can choose a narrative begins to open doors for us. It changes how we see the next challenge. It's worth taking a second now to give an aside about the marshmallow test, a study done by Walter Michel at Stanford in the 60s and 70s. It's sort of stunning in its results and extraordinary in how many years the researchers followed the participants. The short version of the study, you've probably heard it before, is you take a three-year-old or a four-year-old and you put them in a room with not a lot of stimulation and you show up and you say, hey, here's a marshmallow. I'm going to put the marshmallow here and I'm going to leave the room. I'm not going to come back for a while, 10 or 15 minutes. When I come back, if the marshmallow is still here, I'll give you two marshmallows. So the study found that people, kids, who could wait and sit still until the second marshmallow arrived, who could delay gratification, ended up 15 or 20 years later with better SAT scores, better income, better BMI index, and a healthier life. Wow. So the wrong thing to do is look at that study and say, so what we need to do is train three-year-olds not to eat marshmallows. But the other wrong thing to do is to believe that there's something innate about somebody's ability to wait. It turns out that if you grow up in a home where there aren't parents who are supporting you, where there isn't a lot of trust around, if you're wondering where your next meal is going to come from, well, then it's no surprise you have trouble trusting an authority figure who promises you that there are going to be two marshmallows in a few minutes. Because your origin story, already being rehearsed at the age of three or four, is take what you can get and take it now, because you're not sure what's going to be here tomorrow. And a key part of my origin story was learning from my parents that it was going to be okay, and that I had an obligation to lead and to teach because I had a bit of a head start. Those things combined with surviving the Detroit incident helped me 
tell myself a story, a story that helps in the long run. So how does this affect big organizations? Well, I'll give you two examples. The first one is Western Union. Western Union's origin story for many, many years was about being the dominant technologist, the winner, the monopoly, the center of the circle. So that when Alexander Graham Bell came to them and offered them the telephone, they turned him down because they have the mindset of, we are the center of the universe. Why would we invest in a new technology? It's a company that never, ever recovered when the technology shifted. Or consider the case of AOL. Their origin story revolved around Jan Brandt sending out 500 million CDs and floppy disks to get people to sign up for AOL. It worked beautifully. AOL going forward was about partnering with big names and maintaining its dominance as a direct marketer. The internet came second. So when the technology shifted, AOL didn't know what to do next because they weren't used to being network-based, interaction-based. They weren't used to focusing on virality. They were used to focusing on CD-ROMs. And the third example I'll give you is what happened to Yahoo. It's not as famous as the one that happened at Google, but it mattered. It changed the way they viewed the world. Back in the 90s, there were a bunch of places you could go before Google to find stuff on the internet. Yahoo was just one of them. There was also Lycos and AltaVista, InfoSeek, and eventually Jeeves and others. Why did Yahoo win? How did Yahoo win? The Yahoo marketing department consisted of exactly two people. They didn't win by being marketers. The way they won was two really happy accidents. The first one was that after they left the Stanford campus, they needed a place to run Yahoo because they were kicked off the servers at Stanford. Well, the nice folks at Netscape knew some mutual friends, and they hosted Yahoo on their servers. As Netscape exploded because you needed a browser to surf the web, they wanted to add search to their homepage. Well, the reliable, easy thing to do was to point to Yahoo because they knew it wasn't going to go down under all the traffic. That boost, combined with an easy-to-pronounce name, meant that Yahoo had a head start, and they were really good at compounding that head start. And so, through a stroke of luck, Yahoo became, ultimately, the center of the Internet. As the Internet began to change, this origin story got in the way. David, one of the co-founders, kept the homepage for Yahoo on a locked computer under his desk. If you wanted to edit Yahoo's homepage, you had to ask David to move over so you could do it from his computer. There wasn't a test and measure mindset. There was a mindset of don't blow it. This idea of don't blow it was more similar to Western Union's approach than the scrappy approach of Amazon or Sam Walton at Walmart. So I guess the question is, What's your origin story? What was the incident that got you started on this path? And what was the choice you made after the incident occurred? What about the place you work? What about the companies that you invest in or buy from? What about the country where you live? We're all bathing in origin stories. 
but too often we don't realize that our origin story doesn't have to match our destiny. We can change it. We can make a choice. With great power comes great responsibility. In a minute, we'll be back with answers to your questions from last episode. Thanks for listening. Hey, Seth. It's Maria. Hey, Seth. My name's Kyle. Greetings, Seth. This is Stephen out in Madison, Wisconsin. Hi, Seth. Alicia from Charleston here. Hi, Seth. This is Anupam. Hi, this is Caitlin. Hi, Seth. Warm greetings from Curacao. Hey, Seth. My name is Nick Ryan from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hey, Seth. This is Rex. Hey, Seth. Hi, this is Vasilis from Greece. Hi, this is Roberta Perry. My question is... And that completes my question. Hi, Seth. This is Josh from Toronto, Ontario, Canada. So my question is about your latest episode, Juggling and Bicycles, where you taught us all how to juggle. However, what happens when your pursuit is not as straightforward as juggling? Juggling, there's a direct action, so throwing, then a result, catching. But there's many actions or many pursuits in life that are not as straightforward. Where do we find the throwing action versus the catching action, as I believe most people are stuck, such as email, doing a lot of catching. Thanks for everything you do, Seth, and have a great day. Thanks for that question, Josh. Thanks to everybody who asked a question. We got more questions and better questions than we've gotten from any other episode. Quite relevantly, I'm up in Canada teaching juggling and canoeing this weekend, so the audio is going to sound a little different but I'll try to answer as many questions as I can. The thing about juggling with the throwing and the catching is that once you hear that dichotomy, it's obvious. But many tasks in our lives are like that. That once you see the building blocks, many of which have been explored by people who have studied those areas, then you can focus on them. So consider woodworking. Woodworking, making a chair. There's at least 18 steps to making a chair. And if your goal is to rush through the steps to make a decent chair, you'll make a lousy chair, and then you could start over. Alternatively, you could begin with learning to sharpen your tools, learning to measure, and learning to cut. Because if you can do those three things really well, you can make almost anything out of wood. Or consider the job of the CEO. She's pulled in 400 directions. There's an enormous amount of incoming. It's hard to parse out where the building blocks are, except that Peter Drucker and many after him realized that her job is two things. One, figure out what needs to be done next, and two, make sure it gets done well. If she can focus on those two steps, then yes, the work can get done. Or acting, right? Acting with casting and set design and hair and makeup and blocking and memorizing the script and memorizing the script and and, and a million other things is really only about two things. Being present, being there, and breathing. That's it. Those building blocks have been explored. So while it's tempting to imagine that our task, our project, our craft can't have a building block like throwing, it probably does. And the key difference is this. When we do the building block, we are not worried about the final result or what people think of the final result. When we do the building block, we are engaged in the craft of doing the work, not focusing on the end. 
Hey, Seth, it's Joe Ferraro. Great to talk again. The secret to learning to juggle and ride a bike, you taught us, is that the teachers often focus on the wrong things. What should teachers be focusing on to help young people write their best? Thanks so much, Seth. In my experience, one of the things that gives away our search for a building block is the question itself, our reliance on the outcome. So in this case, getting students to do better writing. The problem is the word better, because when they seek to do better writing, they are focusing on catching, on complying, on pleasing an anonymous reader or a teacher. Instead, the building block is get kids to write, get kids to do lousy writing, get kids to do frequent writing, emotional writing, superfluous writing, useless writing, 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 that if they write often, then the fear of writing has to go away. And then they can start working on catching, otherwise known as better writing. It doesn't make sense to correct the grammar or style of a 10-year-old. It makes sense to correct them when they're hiding, to correct them when they're holding back, to correct them when they don't have empathy or sympathy or vulnerability, when they're not expressing themselves. That's the building block. It's easy to teach a semicolon. It's hard to teach someone to care. Hi, Seth. It's Paul from Boulder, Colorado. When you use allegory to explain difficult concepts like learning to ride a bicycle or juggling by first mastering a secondary and seemingly unrelated skill, it makes perfect sense. I get it. My question is, how can I apply those same lessons to real-life situations? I have a number of employees who are frustrated in their attempts to learn new skills by trying to clone their role models. I'd love some advice on how to help them grow. Thanks. Thanks, Paul, for this impossibly juicy question and for the work you do in making audio everywhere sound better. I apologize for the crackly response. But here we go. There are several things within your question, but I think the core one is this. If we believe that we are going to be able to level up by modeling all of the behavior of someone else, I think we're mistaken. Because leveling up requires a level of originality and responsibility and creativity that doesn't come from doing it like someone else. So what we've got to figure out how to do for the people we lead and manage and serve is get rid of the fear, the fear of dropping the ball. That there are certain situations where we don't want the ball dropped. In the pacemaker factory, we want it to be Six Sigma perfect. But not at the ad agency, not at the department that invents new products, not at the people who focus on innovative solutions in customer service. We want those people to lead, to explore, to experiment. That means they need to fail. Encouraging failure, creative failure, forward motion failure, intelligent failure, that's the job of the boss. But the boss doesn't like doing that. The boss chooses to demand compliance instead. And I think we have to, as bosses, take a deep breath and realize that if we want innovation, we have to understand that the building block we are training people for is the building block of failure. Earnest, useful failure. Thanks, Paul. Hi, Seth. My name is Scott. Here's my question. Is there any way to figure out what is most important 
throwing, or catching before you begin and before you invest a ton of time focusing on the wrong thing. Here's my formula. Step one, assume no one has extraordinary genetic talent, that the field you're entering is the result of grit and skill and determination and hard work and emotional labor. Step two, find out how the people who are great at it, who are resilient, who are able to achieve more, who are at it for a long time. Those people, what are their basic skills? The basic skills that they have earned by focusing on the work. Copy those basic skills. At the very least, you'll end up being really good at something. Thanks for listening. As always, we love your questions. Visit akimbo.link and press the appropriate button. If you like Akimbo, please share it with a few friends. We'll see you next time. There's a big problem that's changing everything about the world as we know it. Carbon and the impact of humans on the earth. We talk about it with words like climate change and global warming. But there's just two really important things that you need to know about it. First, this is an overwhelmingly big problem. So much so that it's likely that you feel as though your choices don't matter in the face of it. Second, that overwhelming feeling that I just mentioned It's intentional. It was put there by design. The industries that make the biggest environmental impact have a vested interest in you feeling overwhelmed and powerless. They've marketed, lobbied, and schemed to create that feeling in all of us. In short, we've been lied to. But here's the good news. There's a lot you can do to make a difference. And the other good news is that there's still time. The Carbon Almanac is a book and project about these problems and what we can do to solve them. It was created and run by volunteers on the premise that it's not too late, but none of us can fix this problem on our own. We need each other. There are many ways to get involved, but simply learning more is a great start. Here are three steps you can take. First, go to thecarbonalmanac.org and sign up for the Daily Difference emails. They give you a short thought and a practical action that you can take alongside thousands of others every day. Second, get the Carbon Almanac book. It's full of facts, articles, graphs, and art. It's beautiful and fun to engage with. It's all footnoted and fact-checked. And importantly, it's made by volunteers whose only agenda is to solve these systemic issues. You can find it wherever books are sold. Finally, since you're listening to a podcast, search for the Carbon Almanac wherever you're listening. You'll find the Carbon Almanac podcast network and a few shows featuring expert insight, discussion, inspiration, and ways to take action. There's even a show just for kids. Do what appeals to you. Just do something. There's still time to make a huge difference in the future of the planet, but we can't solve this on our own. Join us.